I've often quoted something that you said to me during the financial crisis. You said that it takes both the will and the means to solve big public policy issues, but that too often, by the time you have the will, you no longer have the means. I remember the first time you told me that in the heart of the financial crisis, I've quoted you since. And so the way we're talking about it internally and what's exciting for us is that it means that every email sent through Gmail, every question you ask on Google search, every YouTube video you watch, every route you take on Google Maps is supplied by clean energy every hour, every day, which is why we're very excited about it. We view it as a really profound change and very much hope that it points the way to others to run their operations sustainably. Welcome to Straight Talk, the podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Ruth Pratt. Ruth is a senior vice president and chief financial officer at Google and Alphabet. Prior to joining Google in 2015, she had a 28-year tenure at Morgan Stanley where she ultimately served as executive vice president and chief financial officer. During the 2008 financial crisis, Ruth and a few colleagues from Morgan Stanley did a great job for me and my team at Treasury on an advisory assignment, which resulted in our ability to nationalize Fannie and Freddie just in the nick of time. Ruth, welcome to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion We've got a lot to talk about. Let's start with your personal story. You spent a good part of your early life around Palo Alto. What was it like growing up in Silicon Valley? How did it shape your values, your interests, your approach to life? Well, first, thanks for having me. It is, it's great to be with you. Um, so Palo Alto, when I was growing up, was dominated by Stanford then, as it is now, which means super vibrant, eternally optimistic, my father was a physicist at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, and my mom was a psychologist. She had a practice from an office in our home. She had clients who were coming in and out of a side door. So my dad worked for and with Nobel Prize winners in physics. My high school and the ones around had the founders of all the rock bands, at least I liked back in the day, Jefferson Airplane, Santana, Fleetwood Mac, The Grateful Dead. So even as a clueless kid riding my bike all over the place, I knew it was a special place. And the message as a young child was that nothing is impossible if you work hard and never give up. Um, my father was a Holocaust refugee. And so one of the key things he always said to us is that education is a passport for life and that you must remain intellectually curious. And he never took for granted the gift of being in the United States. And my mom, she stressed the importance of working outside the home as a woman and the importance of her career to her. And so, how did it shape me? Uh, I went off to college thinking that there was no limit. What a place. You know, I grew up listening to Stevie Nicks too. <laughs> he <laughs> was at my high school. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember the first time I saw Stanford, I'd, I'd been accepted at Stanford and Harvard Business School. I'd gone to Harvard. And the first time I went out, representing Goldman Sachs recruiting at Stanford. I said, holy cow, what did I miss? <laughs> you know, what a place. Now, but you made the leap, okay, from Wall Street to Silicon Valley, and then back again in 2015. Why? 
why'd you go to Wall Street to begin with? Then why back to Silicon Valley? And was that a difficult transition? What was it like? So I loved being at Morgan Stanley. Throughout my career at Morgan Stanley, I had the opportunity to move around into a number of different roles. And so really kept growing professionally as a result. I ran technology equity capital markets in the 90s, which was that first wave of internet companies. I ran financial institutions during the financial crisis, and then that led me to the CFO role at Morgan Stanley in 2010. And it was an extraordinary time working with James Gorman. We were coming out of the crisis and trying to get Morgan Stanley back to what it was. And five years later, the Google opportunity came up and it just seemed like a, a really natural move. I had worked on the Google IPO back in 2004, so I knew a lot of the leaders. I knew a, quite a number of the board members. And I was at a Stanford board meeting one day and went over to spend some time with Bill Campbell, who was an iconic coach for so many people in the Valley, from Steve Jobs to Larry Page and Sergey Brin and Eric Schmidt. And spent a couple of hours with him. And at the end of it, he raised the idea of Google. And it didn't even occur to me, even after he raised it, that it was real. And uh, as soon as he did, I said, of course, how, what a fascinating chapter that would be. And I went back to the Stanford board meeting, honestly not thinking anything would come of it. And he called me a couple hours later and said, can you get over to Larry Page's house? And I did, and we spent a couple hours together. And the rest just came together very quickly. James Gorman was great about it. And it was great being back there. Our three boys had attended Stanford. My family still lives there. So the transition actually was easier than it would seem from those two parts of the world. Wow, what a career. And for those listeners who don't know this, coming out of the financial crisis, there was great scrutiny on Morgan Stanley from investors because the firm had come close to going under during the financial crisis. And James Gorman and his team, and you were the key member of the team, really repositioned, restructured uh, Morgan Stanley, and I think in many ways rebranded it with investors. That had to be difficult, exciting, and very helpful to the next phase of your career because you're, you're clearly not afraid of challenges. Well, thank you. It was a tough time. You know, I, a 2010, even though that was right after the, the worst of the crisis, uh, Morgan Stanley was still in the process of repositioning itself. And I think one of the most important things that we did is paint a picture of where we hoped to be a number of years out. And it was really connecting the dots to the future, laying out some pretty clear goals. And I think one of the really important elements with investors is one, to make it clear what the long-term view is and why delivering on the long-term view creates value and what the steps are to getting there. And then holding ourselves accountable and really marking to market the pro progress along the way. So um, James, uh, you know, I really credit with having the early wisdom and vision around wealth management. Um, that was a cornerstone of it, but there were many other elements as well. And so uh, it was just steady execution that took us back to what Morgan Stanley had been for most of my career. Yeah, the vision is key, and then it's got to be backed up with the execution, and, and you guys did both. Now, let's turn to a topic that's on everyone's mind right now, given the raging fires on the West Coast, flooding in the South, you know, climate change, and these extreme weather-related climate shocks. Ruth, you oversee Google's sustainability efforts. 
what role does the private sector have in fighting the climate crisis? I think the private sector has a critical role to play, um, given the sheer magnitude of the issue we all do, the public sector, the private sector, each one of us as individuals. And I've often quoted something that you said to me during the financial crisis. You said that it takes both the will and the means to solve big public policy issues, but that too often, by the time you have the will, you no longer have the means. I remember the first time you told me that in the heart of the financial crisis, I've quoted you since, and I can think of no bigger issue than sustainability with respect to that warning. I mean, clearly the world is out of time, the science is really clear, and I firmly believe that we must act now if we're gonna avert the worst consequences of climate change and that each of us has an important role to play. What I'm really proud of at Google is that sustainability is built into everything we do. It was core to what Larry Page and Sergey Brin wanted at inception. Um, and so it's built into how we run our data centers, how we build and run our offices, how we work with our supply chain. And then most exciting, we build it into our products. So in fact, we set a goal for ourselves to help a billion people through our products by 2030. And it's just woven into each one of the product areas. So for example, you can go to Google Maps and you can find bike shares or you can find electric vehicle charging stations. Or in many European um, countries, you can use Google Flights and then sort by the least carbon intensive options. And so you know, each one of us is charged with how can we think about elevating the issue of sustainability and I would say, you know, each one of us, every business, every individual has the opportunity to do that. It's the same process you used at Morgan Stanley, the vision, and then holding yourself accountable and milestones along the way. Now, on issues of equity and sustainability, I've heard you say it's not just the right thing to do, but also the right thing to do for business. Elaborate a bit more. Why is it the right thing to do for business? Yeah, I think it's really important people see that it's a win-win situation. So, for example, on equity and the importance of diversity, there's research that underscores that diversity in your leadership ranks, diversity on your board is actually correlated with stronger financial performance. When we think about sustainability, it's really that same double win. For example, Google runs what we believe are the most energy efficient data centers in the world. We challenged ourselves a number of years ago to see if the application of AI to what we're doing on energy consumption can yield results, and it did. We, we got an incremental 30% reduction in energy consumption, which translates right into energy savings um, on heating and cooling. And so that's on systems that were already optimized. And we're excited to then take those learnings um, and insights to other companies to help them advance their sustainability goals and save money. On top of that, there's obviously, I think, there's a, a, a customer benefit, there's a brand benefit. By adding sustainability into our products, we become ever more helpful for our users, ever more relevant. And I also think increasingly it's a talent magnet because this generation wants to know that they're working with and for a company that's socially responsible. And then sort of going back to your prior question at a macro level, I think it's imperative to factor in the massive economic cost to society collectively if we wait. Um, I've also heard you say something I've quoted you on, that doing nothing on climate change is radical risk-taking. I think that's a great way to frame this issue. It is radical risk-taking. 
you just look at the the raging fires, the flooding, and the cost associated with that. It is less expensive to prevent than to fix, and that's why I think there's a double win here. And, and that's the same thing for biodiversity. You know, my institute just put out a report on biodiversity conservation, and a big part of that study had to do with the economics, and it sure costs a lot more to have to restore than to save to begin with. Now, I want to get to a related topic, which is near and dear to my heart, green finance. Now, Google recently issued 5.75 billion in sustainability bonds, the largest by any company in history. For the uninitiated, what is a sustainability bond? Well, first, um, I'm proud that we've issued the largest sustainability bond ever, but I must say I very much look forward to somebody breaking that record because one of the reasons that we wanted to issue a sustainability bond was to help catalyze more issuance and create a broader asset class. So what is it? Sustainability bonds are designed to address the growing investor interest in ESG investing and environmental, social, and governance. And unlike the better known green bonds that, that you just referenced, the goal was to address this broad asset class by also including social issues. So it's environmental and social. It covers the full gamut. And what we did when we issued our bond is we published a really detailed framework for sustainability and it delineates all of the areas that will be addressed through the proceeds of the bond. It's eight categories. Five of them are environmental, three of them are social, everything from racial equity and economic opportunity to affordable housing. Much of the work that we did really as a result of COVID-19 to address social issues. So tell us some more about some of the projects being funded by the bonds. What are some of the projects you're most excited about? Well, in particular, I'm excited about all that we're doing around climate change. We set a goal to operate um, all of our data centers and all of our campuses on carbon-free energy 24-7 by 2030. And we're the first company that has set out to do this. This really builds on what we've done in our first two decades. So in 2007, um, we became the first company to become uh, carbon neutral. And then in 2017, we matched all of our energy consumption with renewable uh, sources. And this goal for 2030 to operate 24-7, we view on, on carbon-free renewable energy, we, we view as the most audacious goal that we've had because what we are looking to do is to catalyze the development of the renewable grid globally so that we can run our operations on carbon-free energy. And so what we're doing is driving system-level changes that, that can result in true decarbonization. So it's not about capturing carbon that's been released, it's about preventing that from ever happening. And so the way we're talking about it internally and what's exciting for us is that it means that every email sent through Gmail, every question you ask on Google search, every YouTube video you watch, every route you take on Google Maps is supplied by clean energy every hour, every day, which is why we're very excited about it. We view it as a really profound change and very much hope that it points the way to others to run their operations sustainably. I would say on the social equity side of the sustainability bond, we're, I'm really proud of what we're doing to support and address racial inequity. I think it's really important to think back to the 
uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s March on Washington in 1963. It was called the March for Jobs and Freedom. And you know, the fact that it is so, so important to keep reminding ourselves and addressing, you cannot have freedom without an economic foundation. It links to housing, it links to education, it links to health. And so here we are almost 60 years later and we have many of the same issues. So to do our part, we committed $275 million to focus on economic opportunity for the black community. And one area that I'm really excited about that goes back to your roots is we supported community development financial institutions and uh, CDFIs. And so the notion is that they're filling in a critical finance gap in particular for small, medium businesses, Black-owned small, medium businesses. And so excited about what we're doing there. Well, that's particularly important now because a pandemic has shown a bright light on some of the income disparities and wealth disparities. And uh, one of the things that's most concerned me is, you know, there, there have been some terrific pr programs coming from Treasury. I, I think uh, that Washington really came together very quickly, and this CARES Act made a big difference. But the PPP program has done a good job for many small businesses. But one of the heartbreaking things is that in the inner city, so many of the Black-owned businesses have failed. And to me, this wipes out decades of progress and emerging members of the middle class. So again, I think the CDFI initiative is coming at a really, really good time. Yeah, no, we, we absolutely agree. I think what's profound about it is when you work through a CDFI or the network of CDFIs, the investment we're making then gets leveraged and multiplied in a really profound way and is addressing precisely that need where capital is scarce. So we're really proud of what we're doing with them. You should be. So let's move on to tech. Artificial intelligence, AI, you know, has been a really hot topic in recent years. And this is an area where Google is one of the leaders in the world maybe the leader with one or two other U.S. companies. And there's a, obviously a big competition with China in this area where we're a couple of years ahead. Now, AI promises to alleviate any number of problems, but I'm particularly curious to hear your thoughts about this technology's potential in helping solve some of the issues stemming from the pandemic. Well, I think to your point, what's profound about AI is that it really can address so many elements for every business, large and small, for governments. It's, you know, new business models. It supports decision-making. It um, enables greater efficiency. So uh, yeah, it, extraordinarily transformative. With respect to the pandemic, probably the, the most immediate thing that we did was focus on how we could help federal, state, and local government agencies continue to support their constituents with a surge in inquiries at a time when they were trying to keep their employees safe and at home. But how do you make sure that we can continue to deliver things like unemployment payments or address critical questions of the disease? So one immediate use of AI has been customer support what we do is we can do a you know, rapid triage of inquiries in multiple languages, then direct the calls as needed to that more limited human support. The other area has been the value of AI in predicting some of the supply chain constraints, um, as well as capacity planning issues for key medical supplies to 
ensure that we're maximizing use of what was um, unfortunately a too limited resource. And we also found the same with businesses, just the spike in, in inquiries that businesses had. I would say if I can broaden the question a bit, technology and the ability to move to a virtual world has been absolutely invaluable during the pandemic. Just the shift, even the way we're able to, to speak here today. And you know, if you reflect on what life would have been like if the pandemic hit 30 years ago when we couldn't communicate, we couldn't have video chat, there was no way to have our kids go to a virtual school, uh, we couldn't keep commerce online. You know, I, I was really struck that in some recent survey work, one third of small businesses said they would have failed if they didn't have online digital tools. And so we're really proud of the effort there to help everybody move to this more virtual world and keep communicating, keep commerce going, doing what we can. And so it's that element of it as well. You know, this is, it's really made a huge, huge difference. You know, one thing, that the pandemic has done. One benefit, I suppose, is it's shown a very bright light on glaring problems. And so that gives us an opportunity to move quickly and to, to clean them up. And I think one of the, the biggest problems is the example you used, which is state and local governments and how some of them are really in the dark ages when, when it, it comes to technology and the ability to execute programs. You know, I was really struck by how primitive some of the state's programs were when it came to executing unemployment insurance programs. The federal government could design uh, really interesting targeted programs, but you couldn't really deliver them. And a lot of the subnational governments, state governments, have very tough fiscal constraints. Unlike the federal government, they have to balance the budget and they've had a shortage of funds. So I think that effort is going to be very important, you know, your effort to help them with technology, but it's gonna take a lot of work, I think, to set things straight. Well, I think to your point, there are a number of areas where you know, we can each step back and say, what's a better delivery model? Like one of the areas I'm very excited about is seeing the surge in telehealth, telemedicine, because again, it enables you to deliver quality healthcare to more people very efficiently. And I've heard um, hospital administrators say, we're not going to go back to where we were. The sheer volume that's come online has been extraordinary, and we're seeing that it works with the, you know, the benefit of technology and the tools that we can use. So it's gonna be an evolution of the business model. And also, you know, we're looking to see that in a number of places. We should each ask ourselves, how can we evolve our models? Well, speaking of telemedicine, Ruth, you've written very beautifully about your experience as a two-time cancer survivor and the advances that AI is making in healthcare innovation. Give us some reasons for optimism on this front. Well, I do think with AI applied to healthcare is an area to be very optimistic. Everything from disease detection and drug discovery to reducing medical errors to cost management and delivery models, like I just mentioned. But I think one of the most important is addressing the inequality in treatment and access. You know, in my lifetime, I think a modern American medicine has been amazing for those of us who can afford it. And I firmly believe that without it, there's a very good chance that I wouldn't be here. And this in, you know, inequity in treatment really does make me sick to my stomach because 
of the experience that I went through. You know, for me, it was personal when Google announced that um, we had a breakthrough with AI in early stage detection of metastatic breast cancer. I thought it was a, an extraordinary moment. And as a breast cancer survivor, I know all too well that the timing of detection can be the difference between life and death. And I wanted to make sure that I was getting a professional, a medical view of the importance of this breakthrough. So I called my oncologist and, and asked him what his view was. And his comment was that we could not democratize healthcare without AI, without technology. And that notion of democratizing healthcare is what I find to be just extraordinary. It gives me optimism. We're doing work in other areas. So for example, we had a breakthrough in detection of diabetic retinopathy, which is the fastest um, growing cause of blindness. There are over 400 million people, uh, diabetic patients at risk worldwide. Um, and the disease can be treated if it's detected early, but if it's not, it leads to irreversible blindness. And one of the most common ways to detect diabetic eye diseases is to have a specialist examine your eye, but not everybody has access to that. So what we did is focus on how AI-powered analysis of retinal scans can transform the traditional uh, manual doctor, can really leverage the doctor and make all the difference for people who don't have access. So that whole notion of uh, democratizing healthcare, I think is amazing. The other is some of the work that we're seeing that is enabling us to think that we can move from uh, reactive care to proactive care. And one example that, that really struck me is some work that we recently published that's dealing with kidney failure in hospitals. It affects about 20% uh, of patients in the US and the UK. It's hard to spot. Patients can deteriorate really quickly. But experts believe that about 30% of this of kidney failure could be prevented if the doctor intervenes early enough. And the first step in the work that was done was using some basic technology just to integrate, aggregate all of the available data. And what we were able to do is reduce the diagnosis time from four hours down to 14 minutes, which reduced the cardiac arrest in patients by 30%. Then our team applied AI, and that 14 minutes went to negative 48 hours. In other words, with the help of AI, we could see the trend that was leading to what would be the kidney failure. And so this whole notion of how can AI help us actually move to proactive care, I think is another major reason for optimism. And AI can democratize a number of things. It can democratize education. It certainly, I've seen it democratize education about nature. So there's, there's a lot of potential there. Now, Ruth, before we wrap things up, I'd like you to reflect a bit on your career. I know you've still got a big part of your career in front of you, but sometimes it's interesting to look back. Anything you might have done differently? What accomplishments are you most proud of? Best advice you've received? Whatever. Just think a little bit about looking back over your career. Well, I've often been asked variants of this, and I've often said that what I'm uh, most proud of is truly the work that I had the opportunity to do with you during the financial crisis. And I would hope that you don't edit this out of the program, but you know, I'm eternally grateful for that opportunity, for all that I was able to learn. And most important, as I think about it, it was the opportunity to use skills that I had developed over a very long time 
in banking at Morgan Stanley at a really critical time uh, for our country. So I'm just eternally grateful for what I learned and for what you did and for your leadership. It was a lot of the lessons that I learned in that crisis, I've applied to this crisis. Uh, the number of times I've said, uh, you know, in a crisis, you only are dealing with uh, least worst options. So pick one and move on and just, you know, anchor it in data and make sure you do the analysis and keep plowing forward and make sure you communicate as well as you can. And those are all things that we clearly focused on in 08. I would say the best advice I've ever gotten, probably from my parents, uh, my father's advice to never stop learning. I think it does keep you really young. It keeps you vibrant in the game, alive, having fun. And then uh, my mom, who was uh, an amazing uh, character, she said to me that if you want to impress a man with your intelligence, ask him a question. He'll speak for 20 minutes and then think <laughs> of that, a fabulous conversation. So that actually does work. So I would say my parents gave me my best advice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Your comments on the financial crisis bring back some memories. Not all of them good. But I'll tell you, the good part was the work that you and your team at Morgan Stanley did when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were on the brink of unraveling or failing, which would have been a huge disaster. And what I remember very fondly was first that Morgan Stanley took on that assignment without any compensation or without any indemnification from the government. The second thing I remember is that you and your team gave me advice that made a huge difference because it made it possible for us to nationalize these mega financial giants in a way that stopped the run on them immediately avoided financial disaster and made it possible for the U.S. government to help mortgage issuance during the crisis. So again, a very timely observation given what's going on today. So Ruth, this has been absolutely terrific. At a time when there's so much bad news in the world, I'm sure our listeners will find this as uplifting and inspirational as I have. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for your leadership on all these issues. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.